What's up? Welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I have Bruce Clark, an associate professor of marketing at Northeastern University. How are you, Bruce? Good. Yourself? I'm very well. With any luck, we're going to put this live today. A lot of the podcasts I do are not live. I've tried to take care of them. I've tried to edit them, but we're going to go live today because we're going to talk about some topical stuff specifically around how you and uh, your students and the college are adapting to the coronavirus right now. And we're also going to get into a really tasty topic, which is marketing 101. How do you teach marketing right now? What's the point of marketing right now? How does a professor or an associate professor adapt how that associate professor teaches marketing to what's needed right now? So I'm very excited. Tell us what this week's been like for you. So it's been a bit of an earthquake at our university, and I think at many universities in America, certainly. Um, We went live online yesterday morning, and the notice on that was about 36 hours. So everybody was sort of thinking it might be coming, but, you know, until you have the date, you don't actually know. And of course, like all the universities now suffering this, We're taking classes that were on ground for the first seven weeks of the semester and trying to put them online for the last seven weeks when nobody signed up for this and nobody Mm -hmm. planned for it. And Mm -hmm. so my university has done a tremendous amount of planning around this, uh, which is one of the reasons we didn't go live earlier. Um, Northeastern's very, very good at planning for stuff. Um, But it is a bit of an earthquake. And so... Uh, Wednesday and Thursday were pretty crazy, actually. People were very kind of upset. Students were very anxious. What does this mean? Should I stay on campus? Should I go home? Um, Kind of like a lot of us are feeling about work generally right now. Uh, Mm. And then now we are up and running as best we can be. But it's going to be a work in progress for everybody, just not at our university, all universities. This is going to be something of a work in progress. Mm. Do, do you have a sense because some students are in pretty vulnerable situations where they might have really bad or no family relationships to depend on and maybe they could be quite isolated from peer groups and friend groups they might have had jobs on campus they might have been living on campus and now all of a sudden they might not be able to earn money their college debt is going to be lingering in their minds whatever delay happens right now is going to delay their ability to pay back their college debt they might worry about the quality of the education whether they're going to get sick you know how is the college yes. adapting to the kind of more the more humanitarian part of this so uh different schools have been handling this differently some schools have been telling students you have to leave the dorms and we have not done that partly because of this concern you know, this is disruptive enough without telling somebody they have to move out of their dorm room in three days, uh, which has happened at some universities. Um, mm. We are, at Northeastern, we are keeping the dorms open. We are keeping basic campus services open, dining services, um, uh, the usual on-campus operations. We're keeping our counseling operation open and our health healthcare operation open because we're letting students go home if they want, but some students either can't uh, or don't want to go home, uh, depending on their situation. So we're trying to be flexible. And one of the things I've been putting out things on social media today about 
I've, I've taught online for a long time. I've been doing this for over 10 years. We have an online MBA that we went into quite early. And so I've been posting tips online uh, through my Twitter feed and also talking to my colleagues at Northeastern trying to help them out. And one of the things we're saying is, remember, your class is not the only thing in their lives right now. They've got family stuff. They've got their own anxieties about whether they're going to get sick. You know, we're going to have to be generous in a lot of ways to make sure students feel as good as they can coming out of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, are there any decisions that have been discussed? And I don't know how involved you personally are with the non-academic part of the college, but have there been decisions that have been discussed where for some people it seems really obvious to do one thing, yet there are consequences that people might not have expected or might not have even thought of considering. And I'll give you an example. So in, uh, in New York, there's a big call to close down the schools. And I don't know if it's happened just yet. It's Friday around mid, uh, around noon, around 12 o'clock. I don't know if it's happened just yet. But the problem with that is there are, about, there are over 100,000 homeless students in New York schools. And a lot of them, I think two, two things that make it tricky if they're in shelters, I think for some shelters, they're not supposed to be there during the day. I don't know if the shelters get locked and what happens, but they're not supposed to be there. It's something that I heard. And the other part is that a lot of them get their food from schools. And yet for parents who've got their kids at home who don't know about this problem, it seems really obvious to close down schools, even though there is the counter argument that, you know, well, a lot of kids don't get it that bad. Are there things like that that have popped up within the, the college community where the decision might have seemed obvious and then you realize that it's really not that simple. So Northeastern is a private university and uh, tends to attract fairly well-off students or well-supported students. I think some of the problems you're describing, if you're running a community college, oh my God, this has to be tremendously important to you because you have students who are single mothers. You have students who are working two jobs to be able to pay community college tuition and they may be losing their job. And so we don't have that problem, I think, so much in our university. And I should say I'm not in leadership, but I was in leadership previously. Um, I think the problem, the immediate answer here is go online. And that is going to produce a host of unintended consequences. One of the assumptions that people make about students is they're all good with technology and they all have good technology. And in fact, that's not true. So I was in two, I was in three meetings yesterday just with colleagues and one of them failed because his Wi-Fi just didn't work. Mm. And so this idea that we're seamlessly going to go online and students will be fine with it because, you know, they're all really digitally savvy and they all have great phones and this will all be terrific. Yeah, maybe. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think both for universities and I think for companies more generally, understanding the infrastructure that you and your customers have is very, very important for thinking about how you navigate your way through this situation. Mm -hmm. What about uh, anxiety and mental health challenges that are specifically caused by what's happening right now or exaggerated uh, not exaggerated dramatically but emphasized by what's going on right now because for i guess for a lot of students they're going to be freaking out for all the reasons that yeah. we've mentioned even though i understand that the students at northeastern are often not always but often from pretty well-to-do backgrounds you know how, how do you accommodate them or or help them 
deal with those so, mental health challenges and the learning needs that are pr- apparently are going to still be there for them to achieve and do. So uh, like most large universities, we have an extensive counseling operation. And this has been going on for a long time because one of the things generally in higher education is that we are finding students coming to higher education with higher levels of anxiety, higher levels perhaps of uh, mental disorders in some fashion or another. And so we need to keep track of that and we need to make sure we take care of them while they're here. So we actually have a very well set up infrastructure uh, for, you know, if you have an anxiety attack in class, we can call somebody. Uh, That actually, that works. Um, I think, so that is in place to the extent individual students find that they're in that situation. And faculty also watch out for this. So we watch for signs that students are having trouble. We watch for signs that something's going on. You can often tell their behavior changes dramatically and you realize something's happening. Um, you know, they're all young people who are trying to become adults and that's stressful enough without this particular mm-hmm. situation. This particular situation, uh, as with, I think, all of us, there's a ton of information out, of, out there. And to borrow the old advertising phrase, I know half of my information is bad, but I don't know which half. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there are a lot of rumors. There's a lot of anxiety. We hear early in the week there were students saying, I heard somebody in this dorm has been diagnosed. And it's not true, but the rumor's out mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Uh, for us as a university, it's been very important to communicate on a pretty regular basis pretty broadly. So we've been getting something fairly substantial out, at least to faculty and staff, and I'm sure we're talking to students in the same way. We've been getting something fairly substantial out about every 12 hours now since Tuesday, because mm. the best the best way to sort of reassure people is to put out factual information and how we're going to deal with the situation. And honestly, to just convey we're all in this together, you know, both for universities and I think organizations dealing with their own customers in this situation, we know nobody signed up for this. We're going to make it work. We're all in this together. Let's keep talking. Let's keep making things work. And we understand it isn't going to be perfect, but we are going to move things along and, and we're going to do the best we can to make sure that at the end of the day, you will be taken care of. Yeah, it's an interesting, very interesting situation, I think, to, to deal with. Uh, you know, you've kind of got these symptoms of basically flu, cough, pain on chest, shortness of breath, maybe bluish lips, bluish skin, uh, fever. And then you kind of hear the conversation, like there's little talking points that come off that. There are conspiracy theorists trying to work out what, you know, is this man-made and has this been sent around the world to, for various reasons? And then for younger people who see that older people are, are dying, there's obviously uh, little hashtags like uh, boomer remover and things like this floating around, which completely lack compassion. And then there are people saying, well, if I'm likely going to survive, if I'm younger, then maybe I want to get it sooner rather than later because then potentially, and I don't know if we know this yet, that potentially I'll be immune to it in the future. And also if it gets really big and I get it now, I won't have to deal with hospitals and the medical system that's completely overrun and and then this is pointing out some huge challenges i think in the healthcare systems around the world and look granted these issues are very complicated and difficult to deal with and it's i think it's when people are 
lack nuance and just sort of point fingers at, at a person who leads an organization or a, or a political party, it's a little bit naive and probably not that useful. Maybe the time for that will come later. Uh, but it's, um, it's just interesting to see how the stories are, are kind of flexing. But I, I think for a lot of people, if they, like if they can, I know it's so easy to say, if they can somehow take care of some of their social and um, financial and food needs, and a lot of people are going to be losing jobs, that uh, spending time, I know this is, I don't mean this in a simplistic, flippant way, but I really do think that spending this kind of time learning and producing, writing, creating, whatever it is that you're into, it's a decent way to try to stay sane in a situation that you largely might not be able to control. Yeah. So, let's, so the question for you is, how, how do you see teaching and learning, at least with your college, adapting in the coming months? So the big change, of course, is we're going online for some period of time, certainly the rest of the term. And I would expect this to continue into the summer. I'm going to surpri- be surprised if this does not continue into the summer. I'm hoping by fall things will be back to semi-normal, but this will depend on how it all unfolds. Going online is, uh, I saw a thread earlier uh, yesterday that said, you know, you get a camera, you get a whiteboard, you stand up, you deliver your class. What's the problem? And in fact, it's way more complicated than that. Um, first of all, if all you think about in higher education is lectures, lectures are probably the least important part of how you learn. Think about how little you remember from lectures you had in college. Mm-hmm. Uh, the stuff that actually matters is the stuff that you do. Experience always beats listening. And so we as a university have this philosophy. Northeastern has been in, involved in what we call experiential education for over a century now. But uh, it's true generally. You learn what you do. You learn what you struggle with. So the biggest educational experiences that you can have are working on projects, working on creating things, as you say, uh, being engaged with content, discussing content with your classmates. Um, I teach with a simulation in one of my electives. And so you're in this simulation, every period you get handed an income statement and there's nothing like being handed a bad income statement to realize, oh, I need to learn something here. And so all of that is actually much harder to translate online. If all we Mm -hmm. were doing was recording lectures, it's fine. But the sum of 10 TED Talks is not a class. You have to really think about what the experience is going to be for the students and what experiences they're going to have. And so that's going to be the challenge. And a lot of what I've been talking about with my colleagues is how to manage online discussions. Um, how to manage online projects, because that is a really big deal in the kind of courses that we tend to teach. And particularly for marketing, marketing is so context dependent. If all I do is stand up and talk to you about theories, well, okay, but how do I apply that in the context I have at my company or in the context I have on my cooperative education placement? We have something called co-op, which is sort of Interns on steroids. So Northeastern's program is that you come and you do two or three six-month paid placements with companies, and it's interspersed with your in-class education in business. 
um, and actually in the university as a whole, they do this, but it works beautifully for business because you have students getting real experience, real paid experience, and then we can talk about it in class. Um, mm -hmm. One of the things we are actually struggling with is we have thousands of students out on co-op right now. And so what is happening to them? Are they being told to work from home? Uh, do they have the infrastructure to work from home? Uh, are they just the intern and the companies are cutting them loose? We have hundreds of students in Europe that we're desperately trying to get home before this travel ban hits. Mm -hmm. So um, it's about how to create the experiences and move them online that I think are the real challenges in, in going forward with education for us over the next several weeks or months. It can be done. I've been teaching online for over 10 years. It totally can be done but it requires planning and thought, which is kind of everything this situation doesn't allow. Uh, mm -hmm. We are really sort of constructing the car as it's moving. And as I said to colleagues and I've said online, you're building the car while it's moving. As long as the car is moving, you're fine. Just keep yep. the car moving. Yeah, I think it's a com the combination of patience and compassion uh, and thinking a little bit more like the tortoise versus the hare because uh, like we don't know what's going to happen. And, you know, I, th I th like if people can somehow, you know, hopefully have savings behind them and, 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 and money coming in. And the thing is, in most of the population, that's a minority of people. So it's going to get a little bit scary out there. But um, just on the point of learning, uh, online versus offline. I, I love the point around how the it's not just about putting your stuff online because if you've ever been to a stand-up comedy club, if you've ever been to watch music live, been in a theater or had like a deep conversation with someone face-to-face, -face, there's a different energy there and it doesn't quite carry through online. Um, and I find that that's interesting. I don't know if you've read a book, I think it's from this book called The Smartest Kids in the World and it talks about the, the Finnish, as in Finland, and South Korean education cultures. And I believe in that book and this has been widely covered that they talk about the US uh, infatuation with technology kind of brought to you by the large technology companies and how all the money that has been spent on technology in classrooms has not really overall led to an increase in the quality of education outcomes. Uh, so sometimes I think we can see technology as a, as a shortcut uh, in a very shallow way, but the real work is that intimate personal work. And, and maybe it's watching someone do something and saying, you know, from a martial arts point of view, oh, your elbows are just 5% in the wrong position or whatever it is. And it's hard to repl replicate that stuff in a one-to-many online experience. It is. And certainly the smaller your class, the better off you are in this situation. If you have... 10 or 15 students, frankly, you can run a class on Zoom if you have to. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it will work fine. Um, I was in a Microsoft Teams meeting yesterday. I could run a 10-person class in Microsoft Teams. Most of our classes are larger than that. And so how do we manage the larger classes? And to your point, if you're teaching something that is not, uh, not easily conceptualized, how do you convey that? The example that we were talking about in a planning meeting on Tuesday was if you're teaching dance, mm. you have to use video, you have to demonstrate, and you have to have the students being able to use video as well. Mm -hmm. So for those classes, it has to be a live class and it kind of has to be a live interactive video class, which is technologically challenging sometimes for the students 
who, mm. you know, they've got a laptop, they've got whatever Wi-Fi connections they have. Um, that's, that's a problem. Right. Um, I certainly agree with you about the energy that uh, you have in a live room. Um, I'm very theatrical. Uh, I use humor. I use my body. I move around the room. I sense the energy in the room. And when I go online, I really miss that. But sometimes you need to be online. And there are whole markets of people who can't come to class. I mean, whether or not this situation goes on, online education isn't going away because there are all sorts of people who, for whatever reason, can't come to class or don't want to come to class. Can I please just do this online? And so we have to figure out how to do that more effectively online. And there mm -hmm. can be some advantages to this. So one of the things, we use asynchronous discussion. And so we have discussion boards and people will post and respond to a topic or a case or a situation over a couple of days. And one of the big things we find is that compared to a live class session, the comments are often more thoughtful because students have time to think. In a 100-minute class where everybody is trying to contribute their points and you're moving very quickly, it can be hard for some students to compose their thoughts and keep up, just in the same way you might be in a meeting where the meeting is moving very quickly. And after you leave the meeting, you realize, oh, I should have said that. Well, when you do discussion boards, you actually can have that second thought and then be able to post it. And so mm -hmm. we find we often get higher quality discussion and we also often find that students who are quiet on ground, when given the opportunity to think and write, are actually quite strong online. And so we hear from students that we wouldn't have heard from in the lively, energetic, discussion-oriented classroom that many of us might prefer to teach. Yeah, I can imagine in a, in a marketing or a business uh school situation that uh, extroversion is very rewarded. I, I even see with my kids who are 13, 11, that they do a lot of group work now at school. And uh, <laughs> I joke with them about it. One of them is quite introverted and it's difficult because they never feel that the, the other people are like pulling their fair weight. And I'm like, look, the world's set up for introverts right now. It's not always going to be that way. And I got you, got you back on this. Uh, but anyway, shout outs to my introverts. What are some of the other concepts? You mentioned asynchronous teaching, which uh, for those who are new to that term means that not everything's happening at once, not everything's synchronized, that a question could get asked today and people can respond to it in their own time over coming days. What are other useful concepts like that that are relevant, really not just for now, but for learning in general, not in a classroom? And so one of the things that we already use online resources for is to give students the opportunity to post and respond things to each other. One of the things I've been recommending to colleagues is have your students uh, post draft parts of your project and have the different teams critique each other's drafts. And this does two things. Number one, the drafts get better. Number two, frankly, some of the students who are a bit behind realize they're a bit behind. Uh, mm -hmm. But it's very powerful, and you can do it in either an on-ground class or an online class. So having students post and help each other, which we can do, is often very useful. In the same way at work, you might be sharing files across groups of people in different offices, and you're all trying to make the file better. Uh, I think that's actually a really nice use of technology to support any classroom. Yeah. Do you teach people how to do that? Because in the workforce, people are often held hostage by shared group documents that 30 people will just 
frivolously put any comment in because they believe that's how they get the attention of their superiors. And sometimes it's completely useless. You know, for example, because we're going to talk about marketing in a second, I've seen five to 10 page marketing briefs of clients and there's just a pile on in the comments. And the thing is that the brief might not have been that good in the first place, but the culture there is just about piling on so that people see that they're, they have an opinion that they're involved and it seems like such a waste of time. So how do you, how do you teach people to give useful critiques? So I have to say, I'm not sure I'm brilliant at that. What I do try to do is I try to model that behavior because I'm engaged in these discussions as well. And we talk about what we call class participation grading. Well, this is a form of participation grading as well. And it's not about quantity, it's about quality. One of the ways I try to model that is I try to pick up when a student posts a really good comment on a draft, I will pick up on that and ask people to expand on this, which tells the student they did a good job and models for the other students, oh, that's what I should be doing. As opposed to saying, me too. Uh, which honestly is something that happens both in in on-ground classes and online classes. Oh, I just say me too, and I agree, and I'm done. And that's not helpful to anybody. It's just filling space because you think you need to talk, uh, which I think is a fairly human characteristic, I will say. Um, yeah, but also like in a corporate world, that translates, the equivalent of that is great. And so people write comments and, or even like all staff emails or interdepartmental emails from senior people and all the other senior people are like, great. <laughs> it's like, you don't just didn't need to communicate like that. I find two, two things that I like to use in those situations. One is encouraging people to ask questions back. Uh, and so what I was hearing with you and you probably have the formal language that I don't have or that I don't possess for these things, but you're, you're in the work with people and you're, uh, turning the light up on the good behavior and maybe not being direct about the bad behavior until it becomes really bad. Uh, so I find questions help you be in the work and give people the problem to solve so that they feel that they're, prob they're solving it in an autonomous way that they're not being told what to do. And then the other thing with groups is uh, you've got one comment here or you've got three comments to spend on this document so that they are actually accountable to each other and think about all the things that could be wrong, that could be improved, but they only get to say one or maybe three things. Do you have any little techniques like that? So I think one of the things that I like that comes from the, the brainstorming literature is it's really helpful if people can plan and submit comments in advance that can then just be put in the meeting as opposed to seeing who put it in the meeting. And so I think unproductive meetings often occur because nobody's prepared, people walk in, and the loudest, most improvisational person in the room or the highest paid person in the room stifles all succeeding conversation. Preparation beforehand and then submitting ideas beforehand can be really helpful, I think, in soliciting a greater variety of ideas, and there is some evidence around this and also uh, a greater quality of ideas because people have a chance to think and people have had a chance to prepare, just as we were saying about the discussion boards before. Uh, I, I, I do, I will say I have a, a philosophy that I have been a manager as well, and my instinct is always to praise publicly and criticize privately. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't want to humiliate students or employees in front of other employees, typically, unless I really have to. You know, if somebody just says something that has to be dealt with at the moment, 
Uh, I tried to take them aside afterwards and talk about why that probably wasn't the right thing to do, how they might be able to do that better going forward. Um, if you if you make people feel like they're going to be punished for contributing, they'll stop contributing. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. that is a philosophy that I have as uh, both as a manager and and as a classroom instructor. And one more thing, actually, you know, we talk about what do you do with the mass of stupid comments that people are putting in, and you look at that mass of stupid comments and you realize Jane never said anything. Jane's not stupid. What does Jane think about this? And sometimes you actually do need to reach out to people who have not contributed to make sure that you get their feedback and let them know that you want to hear their feedback because you do have quiet students and you do have quiet employees mm -hmm. in that regard. Mm -hmm. The invisible work of, a, of an expert teacher. I, I love these ideas. The idea of just removing the name from comments in a document. I mean, you'd need some accountability so that maybe an admin could see the names, but in the document to restrict the number of comments that someone could put in and then to not show the names, that could be quite beautiful, actually. I've, I've not thought of those two ideas. Well, you, you brought up the idea of eliminating the number of contributions, and I quite like that idea. So those two together, you know, everybody give me two. And then yeah. you just put together the list of here's, here's all the twos we got. Let's yeah. talk about all the twos we got. That's an, that's an interesting way of thinking about handling that. Yeah, and it's not your first two. It's your best two. Uh, as you were talking just then, I was also thinking about, oh, my brain just fried, but you know what? We're still going to put this live. Tell me a little bit more. Like if someone, if someone was anxious, nervous, wasn't sure about jobs or even college situation over the next couple of months, but they're not, actually, if they're not in a college, what would be a way to approach four to eight weeks of trying to learn stuff online? Let's say they wanted to, let's say they're a, an account planner and they wanted to learn marketing 101 within well, I'm going to say eight weeks. What would be a, a way to set up your day? What kind of uh, tools would you need? Where would you learn from? So if you're doing this on your own outside a university setting, you know, God bless the internet. There, there are, the problem is actually having too much information. I find uh, I get a tremendous amount actually out of social media interactions with people working in the field. It's one of the reasons I decided a few years ago to become more, much more active on social media was I felt I was getting disconnected from practitioners and that it was important for me to understand how they were thinking about problems and what their issues were, which is why I posted this marketing plan uh, thread that we may talk about as we go along mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think starting with uh, plausible outlets and so thinking about who publishes things that are generally well-regarded. So work usually has good material, for example, things coming out of the IPA, things coming out of uh, the ANA. Uh, sorry, I'm using all these acronyms, Association of National Advertisers, uh, Institute for uh, Practitioners of Advertising, um, whatever I said previously, mm -hmm. uh, the, all these trade associations that are promoting certain aspects of the world, I think are good ones to associate with. One of the things I really like in the UK is the Chartered Institute of Marketing. Uh, and they actually run a certificate kind of course, and you can take a short course, you're not committing to anything. 
Uh, the American Marketing Association in the States isn't nearly as well developed in that regard. I quite admire what the CIM does, and I know people who've gone through some of their classes, and they seem to be quite well done as far as I can tell the distance. And so mm -hmm. that's certainly something that an individual brand planner or strategist could look into. Uh, I was just going to ask you about the UK. It's hard for me to hear the UK mention and for me not to want to ask you about the US-UK well, maybe differences, but also similarities. But in, in the marketing industry over there, even in the advertising industry over there, I feel, I've, I feel like the intellect is different. Do you feel that there's a different kind of intellect in the marketing worlds between the two countries overall? I know it's, it's sweeping, but do you feel there's a difference? Well, how far into gross stereotyping do we want to go? Uh... <laughs> you can avoid it altogether if you like. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I actually, uh, I worked at Cranfield University in the UK for a year. I did a sabbatical there. And so I did get to see that at least their system up close. Um, I think one of the things that is different between America and the UK is that America, Americans can be more suspicious of intellectual concepts in some yeah. ways. Uh, I've heard America described as an anti-intellectual culture. I think that's extreme, but yeah. I certainly find that elsewhere in the world, for example, in the U.S., it's not very common for professors to work with companies. The companies don't think the professors have anything to offer, whereas right. in other parts of the world, that's very much not true. In Germany, in the U.K., uh, in Asia, companies are happy to work with professors. They think professors might actually bring something to the table. And so there is an interesting switch there. And I don't know if that means that marketers in one part of the world are less intellectual than others, but there's certainly, there's more interest, I think, in ideas and concepts. And I have to say, uh, I have a lot of UK colleagues now on social media. I learn a tremendous amount from them. I have American yeah. colleagues as well, but, but uh, there are some really smart UK people posting online. One of the interesting things is how much of what they post is applicable outside the UK. Yeah. Uh, you know, I like Marketing Week, for example, as an outlet. Uh, there's really no comparable journal like that in the United States. But if you want to mm -hmm. know what's going on in marketing in the UK, that's a great outlet. And if I were somebody in the UK doing marketing, that's something I would just browse every day and see what they're talking about and see what's going on. Yeah, I won't bog you down on this particular topic because it is sweeping. But I just know a lot of people have had culture shock as they've, well, maybe moved to the UK, but also moved here. And the way that it's been explained to me, we use the word anti-intellectual, is it's some kind of, uh, and there are books written on this, some kind of combination of religion being opposed to new ideas. Um, elitism, so the elites had all the ideas and took advantage, like the robber barons, for example. And then you get things like the self-esteem movement and the amazing individual, so that everyone's really smart, everyone's really amazing. But then you pair it with what is very amazing about America, and it's the pragmatism and getting stuff done and executing. And so I'm not picking, you know, I'm not saying one thing's, one's better than the other, because I know a lot of people who've moved here from the UK and possibly from Australia because of that pragmatism. And often they'll say also because of the optimism, there's less cynicism and sarcasm within the, the business world and within the industry. So I don't know. I, I find these things really interesting, whether or not anything I said has any sense of truth. I don't know. 
I actually see that with students a lot. Uh, we often see students from other parts of the world who really want to be in America because they see that energy, they see that optimism, and they look at going back home and they feel if they go back home, their life, their life is more circumscribed by yeah. society, by family, by structure, whatever that is. And so the notion of coming here to to the land of possibility, as it's always uh, described, is very appealing to a lot of students from around the world. And you know, if we if we ran the experiment of letting any international student stay in America who wanted to, we would have a lot more international students staying in America. I suspect, mm. you know, yeah. visa rules being what they are, there's a natural cap on that. But if there were no visa caps, I think a lot of international students would stay in America because they see it as a place where it's freeing. It lets them reinvent themselves to some extent. And mm -hmm. they, they feel like they can do things here that they could not do at home, even if that's yeah. not true. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I look, I, I relate to that. And at the same time, that's more possible if you have means behind you. So uh, look, I love, I love these ideas. I just, I do try to point out the, you know, pros and cons, the light and the dark among them, because not everybody's going to experience that American dream, which is kind of a marketing campaign anyway. So now I want to get into your, uh, this started as a, as a, a Twitter thread or a, a question around what should marketing professors teach when they're teaching how to write a marketing plan. And I don't know if you have it in front of you. I do. So I could read it out, but the sample marketing plan outline includes, and this is from a textbook that shall remain nameless as you put it. Do you have it there? I do. Would you like to yes, quickly read through? Would you like to quickly read through the outline? So the outline says you're going to have an executive summary. You're going to have a section that describes the current marketing situation. You'll do a market and customer analysis. You'll do an analysis of your current product situation. You'll do an analysis of competitors and you'll do an analysis of channel and logistics. From that, you should produce a SWOT analysis, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. From that, you should be able to think about the objectives you have going forward and then you need to articulate a marketing strategy that will help you achieve those objectives in terms of target market and positioning to that market, in terms of what the product offering is actually going to be, in terms of pricing, in terms of distribution, and in terms of marketing communication. All of that in turn should lead to some kind of concrete action plan, which has consequences in terms of budgets and financials. And finally, you should be thinking about controls and metrics that allow you to measure the success of this plan. Mm -hmm. So they're all pretty straightforward concepts to me. I mean, are there any concepts in there that you students find tricky to wrap their heads around? I think one of the things we find generally uh, with students coming into marketing classes is they think it's all about marketing communications. And so we joke sometimes that the most important source of marketing concentrators is finance one because they take that and they say, Oh my God, I never want to talk about numbers again in my life. Can I just talk about ads for the next four years? Because their stereotype about marketing is advertising. And mm -hmm. so it's really easy to get them to talk about advertising. It's actually a lot harder to get them to talk about some of the things around, I'd say distribution and pricing in particular, because those aren't sexy. Um, advertising is mm -hmm. very sexy. Uh, whereas it turns out, of course, pricing and distribution in most situations are more important than your advertising. 
Yes, but Associate Professor Bruce Clark isn't marketing, just marketing communications right now. I think that is one of the challenges the field faces, both as a practitioner field and I think uh, within the academic world, we feel that as well. It seems as if the rest of the world is increasingly defining marketing as marketing communications and frankly, digital marketing communications. So you guys just produce uh, that social media campaign and leave the rest of the business alone. This is one of the reasons I talked about in this, in the article I wrote on this, we almost would be better off calling this a customer plan instead of a marketing plan. Because one of the things that happens is people see the title marketing plan and they assume that's what the marketing department does. When in fact, what we do with customers is affected by all sorts of different parts of the company. And we all actually should be working together to make a good promise to customers and deliver on that promise. Mm -hmm. So but if we just call you, it a marketing I mean, it, plan, it almost ghettoizes it. Yeah, but, but at the same time, isn't the word customer, isn't there a huge fight over that? Because sales would argue in some, it depends what the business does, obviously. Sales and growth might argue that they're responsible for the customer. Someone involved with customer experience or uh, user experience, which might sit in the product world and engineering, closer to engineering in some companies. Granted, marketing's trying to pull some of these things together. But in recent years, marketing in, in very large ways has been slid under sales in some massive organizations, global heads of marketing, that role has disappeared from some companies. So what's going on? Like, is the answer to just reposition marketing as owning the customer, which it used to be? Is that the answer? I, I mean, I think part of this is rebranding. And we talked about that in, in the Twitter thread. One of the reasons I posted this thread originally was, you know, we're teaching marketing plans. And yet when I'm online and interacting with other people and hearing about their problems and talking with about their problems, I don't actually hear about marketing plans very often. I hear about business plans. I hear about venture plans. I hear about business models, revenue models. And so I, I wrote to Twitter and I said, is anybody actually doing this? Because if you're not doing it, I don't want to be teaching it. And that provoked this whole exchange and conversation. Marketing as a field still sees itself as doing everything in that outline that I described. Marketing as a department in many organizations is circumscribed in exactly the way that you described. Mm. The word brand doesn't appear on this marketing plan outline. Why is that? So brand would be under product technically, uh, in terms of this outline, I didn't give you, I mean, this goes out to like five decimal places. It's a ridiculous outline at depth. Uh, but brand would typically be appear, appear under product. I'm not actually sure that's correct. Uh, one of the things, so I, I talk about in, in the thread, I'm not in love with four P's at some level because it, it seems sort of disconnected. We have to create something, we have to communicate it, and we have to deliver it. And brand should be implicated in all of those things. Part of why mm -hmm. we might buy a product is because of brand. Part of how we communicate the product is certainly brand. And part of how we deliver it might be brand related as well, especially in terms of distribution uh, in the way we get things out there. So yes, brand does not appear here. And I think many practitioners would pick up on that point and say, yeah, really, where is it? Because that seems like it's pretty important. Now, I will observe this is also 
probably one of the few areas that the marketing department still has influence over. And so they would like to see it on an outline because obviously, just as we were discussing before, you want to make sure your comment is attached to the document so that you've contributed and have shown you contributed. Marketing would like to seed brand on here because that's something they actually do. I see this with marketing dashboards as well. Dashboards can get incredibly complicated because what happens is every unit wants to make sure it has a measure on the dashboard and you end up having spaghetti because mm. it becomes a political document rather than an actual functioning document. Yeah. Well, on, on that, I think this connects to this is uh, so Simon McAvoy, who runs strategy for Omo Bono over in the UK. He responds to you and he says, so these are great in theory. This outline is great in theory and a good diagnosis is vital. But the issue with plans like these is they get dropped as soon as reality hits. Markets are dynamic. So better to have a dynamic marketing plan, loose principles, reviewed and optimized regularly, test and learn. What do you think about that? I think it's a great perspective. It's going to depend on your business. The marketing plan you wrote December 31st, I suspect today you're throwing out the window. You know, this, is, this is not a situation where whatever marketing plan you wrote in December probably makes sense. Uh, a quote that didn't make the thread, but I've talked about with other people, uh, Mike Tyson's famous quote, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Mm -hmm. And we've all just gotten punched in the mouth in terms of business. And mm -hmm. I think everybody's plans are changing. So I, I really, I thought that was a really powerful set of comments that Simon added. I highlighted them and, and talked about them some as well. So to think about dynamics, it seemed like there were three ways people thought about it. One was you just have loose principles and people execute. One was you try to plan for known contingencies. So if you're in the airline business, fuel price matters a lot. What happens if fuel prices are low versus fuel prices are high? That's mm -hmm. something you can think about and plan about. And then the last is this idea of, of planning to change and so continually updating plans, having a rolling window. I talk with students. It can be kind of overwhelming to think about change. And so I talk with students about what I call a four-window rule. Can you think about last period? Can you think about this period? Can you think about next period? And can you think about next period plus one? If you can think about how to change your business in that context, you'll almost certainly be in the top half of the class. It's not gonna be perfect. Nothing's ever perfect. Mm -hmm. I think one of the other things I took from the thread was the importance of planning for what happens after the plan. And so yes, you write a plan, it's a deck, it shows up somewhere. But what's really important is the follow-up documents and initiatives. So a lot of people talked about one-page things that went out to just summarize, okay, here's what you really need to know, or particular update documents and tactical sheets saying, okay, given the plan, this is what you really need to do. Those follow-up documents actually are how the plan becomes actionable as opposed to the plan itself. And so I wrote in the article, you know, some people looked at, them at the fact that nobody looks at the 20 page, 60 page, 800 page marketing deck. Nobody ever looks at that again. That's a bug. People are making it work. That's a feature. Of course, you don't want them to look at it again. That's a useless thing to look at again. Here's the one page you really need to look at. But the one page came from that 60 page deck. Mm. 
Uh, you then turned the your thoughts on the thread into a medium piece called "What's a Marketing Plan." Did you change your mind about anything through this back and forth with many people, some of whom are also uh, professors, lecturers in universities? I think what I really loved about it was the discussion around dynamics and action planning that we just sort of covered. It's easy enough to construct an outline and I have an outline. It's not this outline, but to make this work, I thought the points people had around action planning and dynamics, I learned a lot. I'm going to be using some of those examples in class going forward. How do you actually make this work? Because mm -hmm. we have to make this stuff work at the end. So I certainly had my, my thinking expanded in that regard. And, and I was deeply grateful to all the people who decided to contribute to this conversation in that sense. Mm. We were talking about how should we be teaching marketing plans in our introduction to marketing class. So these are 18, 19-year-old students. What do we talk to them about? These ideas might be a place to start, but in more advanced courses, we need to think about how this finishes. And I thought the thread was tremendous on how do you make it work. Did anything, what, what was the most surprising, or what were the most surprising either concepts or pieces of feedback or discussions that happened in that thread? I thought the way the dynamics discussion played out was very interesting. And, and I should say there's a separate, there was a separate private LinkedIn group that I set up. Uh, I've been teaching for a long time, so I have a lot of alumni, personal alumni. And so I reached out to about 25 former students who are all in senior marketing positions of some kind. And I had a private conversation with them on LinkedIn. And I think I had not really thought through how different companies might deal with the dynamics issue. So thinking about the three things I talked about earlier, do you need loose principles? Do you need contingency planning? Do you need some kind of rolling plan that makes this work on a regular basis? That I found uh, really interesting in the way it unfolded across the two discussions I was engaged in. I, I also found myself thinking harder about different contexts. Marketing is always all about context. And so you probably need a different kind of plan for a new product versus an existing product. For an existing product, the first thing you're doing is a detailed product audit of where you are. For a new product, you don't do that. You probably need a different kind of plan for long versus short cycle businesses. So Simon's uh, thread about loose principles, if, you ch if the market changes very quickly and you change very quickly, you can do that. On the other hand, if you know you're going to have to build a billion-dollar plant to produce something that will come out two years from now, okay, you got to have a plan. You can't actually just sort of spit it out on loose principles. You've actually got to nail that down. And I think mm -hmm. finally, large versus small businesses, large businesses may just need more structure just to keep everybody on the same page. Small businesses, we can all sit in a Zoom meeting and talk about what we're doing. And maybe we don't need a plan there. Maybe we just need frequent conversations with loose principles. Mm -hmm. So I think thinking about those contextual factors, what happens in your industry, how does that work, is really important. I've been thinking a lot more recently in particular about this long cycle versus short cycle. So if you can change really quickly, then what's the point in a two-year plan? But if you can't change really quickly, 
you need to be able to think at some level about how are you going to deploy resources over the next two years uh, okay. because you can't go back. And I think the companies that are going to get hammered in the next month or two are probably the long cycle businesses that have made investments that they were expecting to exist in a different kind of world than we may be experiencing over the next few months, hopefully just mm. the next few months. Uh, look, I don't know if this is a problematic question and I, I know it's simplistic, but maybe you can help me fight us to a better question. What would you do if you're in a marketing role right now? We can define the industry. We can define uh, what's going on, but like, how, how would you generally a- approach it day to day in the coming weeks? So, I'd be checking that I'm promising the right thing to the market and I'd be checking that I'm delivering that because I think both of these things right now are in question. So the promise we made last December, our product, our offering, our brand, is that still the right promise in what is hopefully a temporarily changed world? And the way we were delivering this last fall in terms of distribution, in terms of communication, is that still the right approach? Um, You're going to prioritize and iterate. So Mm -hmm. what are the key issues you need to pick up on at this point? One of the things I would really be checking is how is my infrastructure set up right now? There's this presumption that everybody's going to be able to work remotely and everybody will be able to order online. And so, yeah, it's going to be inconvenient, but this is all going to work. And I suspect we're going to find more problems than that. I think about my three meetings yesterday. One of the three meetings didn't work. Mm. We may find that we don't actually have the technological capability and capacity to do everything remotely. And so I think every company should be thinking about sort of its marketing infrastructure and delivery mechanism and making sure that they can still deliver, they can still get supplies. There's this idea if we go into a recession that we we should advertise more because there is some evidence that suggests advertising more in a recession to the extent you can is helpful. Mm. That's only true if we could actually deliver the product. And so if we can't deliver the product because we can't get supplies, we've just wasted a whole lot of advertising money and actually probably have made customers mad because we promised them something that now we can't deliver. Yeah. Do do you know the source of that research? Because I remember that popping up around 2008. So I've posted online a a summary uh, that a guy named Jerry Tellis at at USC did. And it's a summary of several articles across, frankly, several decades. Every time there's a recession, somebody does a study. And so it's a summary of these studies. The conversation today about this has sort of picked up on the fact that Yes, advertising in a recession probably helps, but you also have to account for the selection bias where the people who can advertise more are probably also the companies that were more successful in the first place. Mm. And you, you don't really control for that. I do think this suggests that if you are strong, this is a good time to step on the gas to the extent you can, because there are going to be weak competitors that can't keep up. If there's a serious recession, there's going to be a shakeout and you can nudge some weaker companies towards the door if you are a stronger company with more engagement. And of course, assets may be cheap. That may also mm. be an opportunity in this regard. Uh, but I can, I, can, 
I can't read you the reference live. Uh, it's a Journal of Advertising Research Study from 2009. Um, and it's a pretty good summary of the academic studies that were done to that period, uh, mm. as far as I can tell. Okay. Yeah, I, I think it's hard for some people to stomach the fact that downtimes are huge opportunities for people. But you know what, you've got to navigate your own ethics on this. And speaking of ethics, I've had a couple of messages about this. And I've seen, uh, I think a few posts in Sweathead in the Facebook group to do with this, which is people trying to navigate their own company ethics at this time, because there are companies that might be doing very, I was going to use the word blatant, but very uh, coronavirus specific messaging around their brands and that might turn some of their own people off because it could seem you know too predatory or too too much a matter of taking advantage of the moment or what's going on how would you help someone navigate their their own moral stance on these things or, or even a company how would you navigate a company around these things so i think the first thing i would say for marketing communications in particular right now you need to be thinking about whether you have the right message and whether that message is appearing in the right places Check your algorithms. So if you have preset stuff you are sending out and have been sending out since the end of January, you might want to check that's still the right stuff to be sending out and that it's appearing in places that are reasonable. Specific to what if the message becomes uncomfortable, I think this is a moment to be very cautious and conservative. Uh, a month ago, you remember when Corona was having the problem that people were searching Corona and getting Corona beer rather than coronavirus, and mm -hmm. there was all sorts of talk about that. They could have chosen to have fun with that and try to be the beer of the coronavirus. I think if they'd gone in that direction, they'd be in a very bad place right now, now that people are starting to feel this is a much bigger deal, perhaps, than it was a month ago. Uh, mm -hmm. I think you want, you always want customers to make good choices. So it's never a good practice to put something out to customers that's going to force them or encourage them to make a bad choice for them. That's not good for them. And in the long run, it's not good for you. Mm -hmm. And so I think thinking about, I'd be very wary of exploiting this situation. The other place to really check right now, if you've automated your pricing in any way, what is happening to your pricing right now? You do not want to appear to be gouging customers just because your algorithm happens to say, oh, these three things happened, and so raise the price. Uh, I, I think we want to be very careful and be a little conservative in this situation. Things are going to be uncertain for some period of time. And I'm not sure it behooves you to get out in front of this wave and, and try and be a big risk taker. Uh, right. Some companies will do this. Some companies will be successful with it. But if I were a manager right now, I would be being very, very careful. And I would mm. probably be trying to do some customer research to just get a sense of how people are feeling. Not massive surveys, but just talking with people. What sort of mm -hmm. anxiety is you hearing? Store visits, things like that. Um, because it's all very qualitative right now. I'm not sure an NPS survey is going to tell you anything this right this moment, but understanding sort of how people are feeling mm -hmm. uh, is, is an important thing, I think, for their co customer companies to grasp. And they should mm -hmm. not just do it with social media because their social media audience is not their customer audience. Yep, social yep. media audience is unrepresentative of your customers as a whole. All right, last question, and then I'll give you your day back. 
What are some practical things that marketers could spend their time on through this extremely uncertain period where they might not even know if they're going to have jobs in a month or two and they might have to hold budget, but like, how can they spend that time in a way that could end up being very productive? So from a company perspective, I think a lot of organizations are going to be put in a forced experimental condition. So for example, lots of companies are going to be doing remote work at scale that they've never done before. What can we learn from that? And what do we keep when this is all over? I think you can also think about this in terms of tactics. One of the most interesting threads I've run across in the last couple of weeks, all these trade shows are being canceled. You're a B2B person selling to other businesses and you go to the trade show. You go to the trade show every year because you have to be at the trade show because the trade show is the big thing every year. Well, now we're going to have a year without a trade show. What happens? Does it actually turn out not to matter as much as you thought? Can you measure that impact? I was talking with a, a colleague of mine who's a CMO at a company, and they're really trying to think through this. How, how can they try to analyze the impact of not being able to go to trade shows? What do their sales forces need to do differently in this kind of environment? And so... I think people are going to be forced into a lot of uncomfortable practices and it's a good idea to see if any of those uncomfortable practices turn out to be better than the comfortable ones. That will be a useful learning. For an individual manager, I think this is a time, especially if you're stuck at home, where maybe you try to think more broadly about your field, try to get more educated about other aspects of your field, uh, in, the, in the event that you may have to be looking for another job, I think it's a great time to renew old acquaintances. I definitely have people who have reached out to me and said, things are really uncertain. I'm kind of looking around. What are you seeing? Do you know anybody who does this? Uh, it's a great time to reconnect with people. And even if you can't do it in person, you can do it online. Just reach out and try and have some conversations with people, frankly, in the same way you and I are having a conversation right now. I think that is, that is a good opportunity. And so to the extent we're all stuck at home, maybe we start trying to rethink some of the things that we do as a company and some of the things that we do as individuals. Mm. Yeah, I think stay, staying active, not being afraid of asking some of those big questions. And the, the thing that I try to push my head to having, you know, I've, I've had some uh, years of uh, interesting mental health, let's just say that, but when things, unpredictable things happen in recent years, I'm much better at asking myself, well, this is just a creative constraint. What can I do with it? And I don't say that in a way to divorce what I'm saying from the reality that it's going to be very, very difficult for a lot, a lot of people out there right now. Um, but I can, I can, acknowledge that while also going, okay, I need four or five hours of sanity in my day. How can I use it productively? Because that's going to keep, well, for me at least, it's going to keep me sane over the long run. Uh, Bruce, where's the best place for people to find you on the internet? So probably Twitter is easiest. It's at Bruce Clark Prof, B-R-U-C-E-C-L-A-R-K-P-R-O-F, just like a professor. Um, I'm on LinkedIn as well, but I'm most active probably on Twitter. And so that's the easiest place to find me. And that is also the place where you can find, uh, the thread that we were talking about earlier today. 
Beautiful. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Best wishes to you, your students, your, uh, your alumni, your college in the future. Uh, and kind of curious to see in an optimistic sense, what good might come out of this very difficult situation? I mean, there are cliches. Necessity is the mother of invention. Uh, problems are always opportunities. There is going to be some of that. There's also going to be some suffering. And so hopefully we find that there's more opportunity than suffering as we go forward. Beautiful. Thank you for joining me on Sweater today, Bruce. Thank Peace. you.